Hello, UNTAP listeners. This is Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. We are very pleased to be able to bring to you an UNTAP special interview with Oscar Eustace. Oscar Eustace is a leading figure in American theater. He is artistic director of the Public Theater in New York, and over the course of the past few decades, he has been instrumental in the development of new work for the American theater. He commissioned Tony Kushner's Angels in America when he was at the Eureka Theater Company in San Francisco. He directed the first production of Angels in America, and since then he has also been involved in the creation of many other important works of theater, including more recently at the Public Theater, Alison Bechdel's Fun Home, and Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton, both of which were developed at the Public before they went to Broadway. So earlier this week, Oscar sat down with Sarah Bay Jung, my co-host, and they had a terrific conversation about American theater and higher education, and here it is. Welcome, podcast listeners. Uh, this is Sarah Bay Jung of On Tap at Bowdoin College with Artistic Director of the Public Theater, Oscar Eustace. Oscar, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure, Sarah. Thanks. Uh, so last night, uh, Oscar gave a, a really wonderful uh, overview and, and a lecture here at, at Bowdoin about uh, the arts and, and theater and democracy and thinking about particularly theater in, in America right now. And I'm just wondering if we could kind of go back to something you talked about there, about this sort of the, the birth of theater in the context of democracy and that this very particular multivaried art form is constantly kind of in tension uh, as a social practice with its, with its political mm-hmm. environment. And, you know, how you see our current theater and current uh, performance playing out in our very particular political moment right now. It, it's funny because there's uh, obviously there's a lot of theater that I love. Um, there's a lot of theater to be passionate about. I don't at all believe that we're in some kind of desert. But I think we're in uh, some difficult blind alleys that are going to take real creativity to get out of. And the one that I spend most of my time in is the overall uh, American nonprofit theater system, which uh, has on the one hand been a spectacular success, this field that didn't exist when I was born is now something I've spent my entire life in. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are tens of thousands of people who spend their entire professional lives within the nonprofit theater. There are professional nonprofit theaters in every state of the union, um, in every major city. They have a vitality and a just a presence that is dizzying when looked at from the standpoint of the mid-1950s. At the same time, I think that as that movement uh, has come to fruition, there's been some big disappointments embedded in it. And I would focus on two or three um, as the ones that I'm most concerned about. One is that the theaters, the professional nonprofit theater is really a misnomer. The professional nonprofit theater is paying living wages to uh, educators, to uh, administrators, to uh, development directors, marketing directors, technical directors. It's not supporting artists. Mm -hmm. And very quietly, it's abandoned the idea that artists are going to be able to make a living wage from the theater. It's abandoned the idea that the central justification for the existence of the theater was providing a home for artists. 
there are hardly any acting companies left at any theater in the country. Right. And we've talked about that a lot as a field, as a phenomenon, the decline of acting companies, without actually seeing it from a bit further and saying it's actually the decline of the professional artist in these theaters. Uh, directors can't make a living. I make a living, but I don't make a living as a director or even as a dramaturg. I make a living as an administrator, as mm -hmm. an artistic director. That's what pays my salary. And it's a disgrace. When you say that, and you sort of think about that from from the from your position, I mean, it seems to me that part of that is about supply and demand of labor, right? You have, and I think that this actually is is echoed somewhat in in the academy as well, where you've got a lot of people who want to do these jobs, and so because acting and directing, or being a professor is a, a highly desirable profession you get a, a pretty strong, pretty talented, capable labor pool that is larger than the number of jobs that it can sustain. And so you have people working for right. for wages where you know where other people maybe aren't. Is that is that part of the calculus or is this is there something else? Sarah, of all the things that I expected to encounter on this podcast, a market argument <laughs> was not one of them. Because of course that's true. But what it means is it's not that the market has Determined that actors won't make a wage is that the idealistic people who founded the nonprofit theater have allowed the market to mm -hmm. determine that they can get away without paying living wages. But my contention is, is just as in the university, you can't really get away with it. Once a university starts hiring more adjuncts than it's hiring tenure-track professors, the quality of work at the university changes. And actually, one of the ways you see it is in the research. The teaching could still maintain a pretty high quality, but the research institutions can't afford to do that because in their mission is the idea that research is central to what they do. And actually, it's a direct comparison that I could make to the American theater. If, if you think of it as a consensus, American society has decided that the place a philosopher can make a living in the country, in the United States of America, is at the universities. That there are not professional philosophers who make a living working outside the university. So when Martha Nussbaum sits in a chair at the University of Chicago, she's not being paid for her teaching. She does some teaching. Mm -hmm. But she's being paid because we've decided that the university is the place that will support philosophers in the United States. In the same way, the nonprofit theater system is perfectly capable of saying, we are the place that are going to support artists. Mm -hmm. And just as... Uh, university research would, the society would suffer terribly, and it wouldn't necessarily show up immediately in the bottom line. It wouldn't because tuition would still be paid by students. Mm -hmm. If all teaching at the University of Chicago were adjuncts, they could they could hire some great teachers. That students would still pay tuition, but there would be an erosion of the intellectual prominence and the intellectual adventurousness of the University of Chicago, and ultimately of the university system as a whole and the intellectual climate as a whole in the United States. My contention is exactly that is happening in the American theater, mm -hmm. that because we have, under cover of darkness, agreed that actors and playwrights and directors and designers will not be able to make a full-time living from the nonprofit theater, the quality of that work has eroded. Very concrete way this affects me, and let's talk about you know, my experience in the New York theater, is that in a way that was absolutely not true 25 years ago, artists and their agents view the public theater 
as a stepping stone on its way to something, someplace else. And, you know, you can argue a lot about, you know, ideological reasons, but the simplest reason, which is usually the most accurate, is because they can't make a living at the public. Mm-hmm. They can have a really big success at the public and not make a living. How can that not be a stepping stone to somewhere else? Right. So we're ending up in situations where, in a way that, again, would have been unfathomable even a decade ago, commercial producers are attached to projects before they even come to the public. And the, the writers, the authors want to do that simply because they want to have a chance of making a living wage. They want a chance of being able to support themselves. If the theaters can't offer that, our artists are going to abandon us. And in abandoning us, they also abandon the values of the nonprofit theater, which is the second great disappointment that I have about the movement, is the distinction between the commercial and the nonprofit theater is eroding in ways that is really disturbing in terms of the kind of work that gets produced by the nonprofit theaters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the public does it as well. We, we owe our existence to the commercial success of Chorus Line. We wouldn't still be on this planet if it wasn't for that. And the fact we produce that and reap the lion's share of the profits from that. We are supported today by the really extraordinary revenues from Hamilton. So we play in that system, but it's 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 a danger. It's a danger. It threatens the content and the principles of what the nonprofit theater is there for, and we have to be on guard against it. The last thing which is connected to those first two is that the nonprofit theater system has lost to a distressing degree the regional specificity that was originally a hallmark of the system. Mm-hmm. Arthur Ballot from the Office of Advanced Drama Research back before you were born, Sarah, used to say that if you blindfolded him, put him in a plane, drove it in circles around the country, and dropped him into a performance at Trinity Rep, he would know he was in Providence within 30 seconds just from watching what was on stage. That used to be true of a lot of theaters. It's true of way less now. Mm -hmm. The theaters starting to look like a monoculture. Why? Because starting in the second Tuesday of November 1980, we've been told that we have to become more entrepreneurial. We've been told that we need to stand on our own bottoms, that we have to be more businesslike. And so the theaters went from being a national movement in a, in a business sense with great local variations artistically to being a local movement in a business sense, which means they're dependent on ticket sales, not on philanthropic donations, and a homogenous movement in an artistic sense. That's, again, there's no magic bullet for fixing that, but the first thing is just identifying it as a problem and then trying to fight back against it. And, and do you think that this is something that other other companies, other theaters, other artistic directors share? I mean, it's... No it's, question. It's something that I've heard in sort of circulation, but I think that at the end of the day, money is going to drive it, which makes the makes our current situation, particularly with the threat to zero out the NEA budget uh, and and potentially the NEH as well, even m- more of a concern, right? And and in fact, I was just reading a, a piece that sort of talked about that sort of addressed like, well, if they get rid of our funding, we'll still go on, you know, right. kind of like, you know, kind of Godot-like, right? My, we can't go on and we must go on. Um, but I wonder to what extent that doesn't contribute to this problem, right? Where, of where, course it does. Uh, where we continually adapt and adjust to new economic realities and thereby further entrench the problems that you're describing. Well, from, from my point of view, Sarah, it depends on how we adapt. And what I'm complaining about is that there is too much of 
the market in how we've adapted to mm-hmm. the thermidor of the last 37 years that in the face of a declining philanthropy, a declining belief in the public sector, a declining belief in nonprofit values, the theaters have adjusted by becoming more market-driven. They depend more on ticket sales. So uh, the theaters will deny it, but I've been working in this field for almost 50 years, and I can, I've can i sat at enough tables to know that it's actually the business plan of a great many theaters right now to drive up the amount of money they're getting from each seat, not to increase the number of tickets that are sold, but hmm. try to make the tickets they do sell reap more benefits. That's terrifying in its consequences. So I think, yes, money drives it, the market drives it, if there is not oppositional strategies. And Everything that we're trying to do with the public, and there's a number of other people trying to do it too, is trying to get stakes in the ground for other ways of creating value and trying to get stakeholders to see that there are values other than the market that should determine why we're here and, you know, was why we got nonprofit status in the first place. And so that's the continual effort. Um, and it's not just in the theater, it's uh, really at this point across the end entire country, all of the nonprofit sector, I think, is under a kind of threat um, of market hegemony that we need to uh, organize against. It doesn't mean we'll win. Nobody ever promises we'll win. <laughs> but it doesn't excuse us from fighting it. Is there, in that battle, is there a role for, for universities, colleges, Absolutely. training programs to play? And, and what, what, to your mind, would be a successful, you know, say, you know, so I, I'm sort of representing my own college here, right, Bowdoin, but also Washington University in St. Louis or Northwestern University. Uh, what are things that those those institutions can be doing in terms of supporting our local partners, but also engaging with the with the the struggle against the this kind of overriding market-driven approach? And well, listen, I actually think the university sector is doing a pretty good job of this because I think the primary function is to try to uh, educate and train young people in values other than the marketplace. And the university, uh, every place I've ever worked, I've had a strong relationship with the universities, with UCLA in Los Angeles, with Brown in Providence, and with NYU in New York. And that's based on the idea that there's huge... um, uh, commonality of values between the nonprofit theaters and the, and the universities. Mm-hmm. We are institutions that are dedicated theoretically to not being driven by the market. The whole point of university and university has been more successful at this, by the way, as a branding. Everybody knows universities don't turn profits, and there's always been something slightly sleazy about the idea of a for-profit university. The theater we haven't been as good at putting that stake in the ground and saying, just like the university, don't even think that we're going to pay our own way. Don't even think that it's our job to pay our own way, because our job is to do something that the market doesn't. Award. And so training students, training the people who are going to be the artists and in some cases the audiences and philanthropists of the future in alternative sets of values, in believing that there are priorities we have that can't be measured by the dollar, to me that's the most important thing mm-hmm. to do. In addition to that, there's all sorts of local alliances that can be formed. There's all sorts of commonalities uh, 
that one can make with local artists. With there's how many artists do we know who have adapted to the fact that they can't make a living in the theater by finding a university position that allows them to continue their art? That's some it's terribly important function, and I'm hoping arguably the avant-garde and experimental work has has depended on it for, exactly for sixty years or more. Yeah. Which is also a problem, <laughs> you know, because yeah. actually, as opposed to my day, the avant-garde has sort of fully migrated into the university, mm-hmm. which actually makes the demands on the avant-garde different in some ways, and in some ways not good. So part of what I'm hopeful of is that theater that is more populist in its intentionality, that is trying to reach a broad audience but just trying to do it in ways that are not determined by dollars, mm-hmm. trying to do it in ways that are not about market success, but about mission success, that those kind of theatrical endeavors can also find comradeship inside the universities. And we were talking a lot about sort of the mechanics of this, um, but I'm, I'm curious also about, is there particular content or ideas or stories that you think are going to be particularly significant and important and necessary in, 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 you know, say the next decade. I mean, certainly, I, I don't think this will come as a surprise to anyone, but Hamilton has really changed changed yeah. the discourse in a, in a fundamental way throughout the rest of my lifetime. Hope so. Uh, I, I, I think so. And, and I think it's something that people will will follow, will at some point push against, you know, it's, it's, it's incited and, and inspired all kinds of different kinds of conversations about what is the role of theater and it's the significant reach beyond it. Yeah. But I'm wondering, you know, aside from the particularities of, of that show and what it does, are there other stories that you, that you think are going to be coming to the surface? And um, that's a great question, Sarah, and I have a couple of answers to it. And one is quite general, but nonetheless real, which is it feels to me that it is always the theater's function to try to tease out the stories that are not being told as part of the major cultural narrative of the time, try to give voice to the voiceless. It's a very old aspiration, but it's a good one, and it's one that has had astonishing success. I, I think that actually... One can point to, um, say, you know, August Wilson's uh, epic of putting the African American experience at the center of the 20th century American experience as something that has really helped change the position of African American history in American culture. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of work is always important. It's what uh, Lynn Nottage is doing right now with Sweat trying to put the recently unemployed working class, put those voices on stage, the people who have been affected by deindustrialization, the people who have been affected by globalization on a labor level, give them voice and articulation, and therefore make them visible in the simplest possible way. So giving voice to the voiceless is always going to be important, and there will always be the voiceless to try to give voice to. It's also true that there are issues that need to be talked about, and and let me bounce off of what I just said about globalization. Um, I think it is very difficult for people to understand the effect that globalization is having on ordinary people, and particularly on working people. Um, It is the cultural corollary of the fact that it has always been very easy for capital to move internationally. It is very hard for labor to move internationally. Mm -hmm. 
And because it's hard for labor to move internationally, it's hard for labor to organize internationally. But all of that is not what the cultural sphere can do. But what we can do is tell the stories of the people affected by these policies in a way that puts a human face on them. And I think class is an enormous issue in this country. It's a hidden issue in this country. And the more that we can find a way to give voice to um, the people who are not profiting from this unbelievably divided economy for people who are suffering the loss of the post-war consensus between labor and capital that led to, as the French called it, the 30 glorious years after World War II, where there actually was a compression of the income range. There was greater equality than at any time since the Industrial Revolution. Um, And we're rapidly moving away from that right now. And our job as cultural workers isn't you know, just to, our job as citizens is to organize against that. Our job as cultural workers is to make sure we're accurately telling the story of what that's doing to people's lives. Mm-hmm. If there were one thing that you wish university college training programs were doing differently, or one thing that would that you would look for or want to encourage or support, so maybe maybe it's something that is happening. You've started an MFA program, you've you know, you teach now, you frequently lecture and engage with, you know, emerging artists all the way from middle and elementary school uh, up to, you know, highly trained graduate students and beyond. I'm just wondering, as you sort of think about these goals in the context of American theater and the, the relationship that training programs and university and colleges have with the, particularly the not-for-profit theater yeah. and regional theaters, as well as, of course, the commercial theater, what's, what's one thing that you wish would continue change that you you know want to sort of right Sarah I don't know if this qualifies as one thing let me try and say it which is that um, and this is happening places and I just feel like we need to double down on the idea that we are educated and training citizen artists not just um, uh, artists and that we are educating and training theater makers not just actors and directors or playwrights and that's basically saying that anything we can do in the theater training to encourage young artists to think of themselves as citizens of the world and the content of their work, the content that interests everybody in the world and all of the different disciplines, and that there is the beautiful thing about theater is there is no content that is alien to theater. Anything that human beings care about, theater can be involved in. And educating and training young people in both the ideology in that and the variation of practices of that, I think is hugely important, which is also about training theater makers as opposed to narrow disciplinary uh, training, not thinking of this simply as a craft, but recognizing that the theater of the future is going to look different than the theater of today. It is going to be created by people who have a different idea about how to go about making things. So training people in the rigid genres that currently exist in order to fit into a system that doesn't work for the vast majority of theater artists seems to me kind of a a lesson in poisonous nostalgia. And their point is to try and arm young people with the ability to make work in a variety of ways, to reimagine their own existence as artists, to apply disciplines outside the theater as a way of reimagining their their own work as artists. Here's an example I, I used earlier, but I think is really useful. Hamilton would not exist 
if Lin-Manuel Miranda hadn't been in love with hip-hop and hadn't been raised in hip-hop and had it in his bounds. He was also raised in musical theater, but he just decided he could put those two things together, that he didn't have to separate his musical theater self from his hip-hop self. That's, a, that's something that can be analogous to many, many other disciplines, that the great leaps in the theater happened when people say, hey, wait a minute, this thing outside of the theater that I care passionately about can actually be involved in the theater. And in order to that, you have to have theater artists who know something, who can be passionate about something other than the theater. And we will leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, sir. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast.